Go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we started this passage last week on Easter, but I want to go back to it and look at it in a little more depth. We're talking this morning about the unshakable church. You know, throughout history, Christians have endured a lot of persecution. Early on in the book of Acts, we see persecution break out against the Christians. They have to flee Jerusalem for their lives, which is difficult for them, but has the benefit of spreading the gospel around the Roman Empire at the same time. Around 60 AD, the Roman Emperor Nero targets Christian with brutal persecution. And maybe you've heard some of the stories, garden parties with Christians impaled on sticks, lit on fire to provide light for a cocktail party. This persecution continued on and off for about 300 years. Followers of Jesus often go through times that our world, our lives are shaken. Times when our beliefs are challenged or even condemned by our surrounding culture. And I think as Christians, it's tempting to Focus there. Oh, woe is us. Things are hard. Things are always hard. Oh, woe is us. That's not where we're going to focus this morning. That is the backdrop for this truth, which is the church is still here. Throughout all of the persecution, throughout all of the attempts of worldly leaders, different cultures, different countries around the world, the church is still here. In fact, I would even say the church has grown more and tended to thrive in places where it was persecuted. And today we're looking at this powerful, powerful passage, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. And we looked last week at the question, who is Jesus? It's a good question for Easter morning. Who is Jesus? And we looked at the proof of who he is through the crucifixion and the resurrection and Peter's declaration in this passage, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, and how we, each one of us have to answer that question, who is Jesus? But now I want to put that question and that statement in a larger context. Let me read the passage for us and then we'll walk through it. Starting in verse 13 of Matthew 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, we need to start with something that I don't like doing in a sermon. I don't like spending time in a sermon talking about what the passage is not about. I really want to spend time talking about what it is about. However, 
there is a giant elephant in this room. (laughs) And that is that this passage is really the only point, or at least is the single most significant point in Scripture from which the Catholic Church gets its doctrine on the Pope. It's right here, this passage, and largely nowhere else. So I feel the need to talk about it. Some of you come from a Catholic background. Some of you may interact with friends and family members in the Catholic Church. I'm going to fly through this as quickly as I can so we can get to the good stuff, but I feel like this is important. I need to say in advance, if you're a note taker this morning, I am so sorry. We are going to be moving fast. If you want to email me like, hey, what was that reference or something, I will uh, try to respond. I was thinking about focus. You know, I'm not a photographer, so some of you are. You can correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding of focus, we talk about a picture being out of focus. It's not so much that the camera is out of focus, but that it's focused in the wrong place. A lens has a focal point. I'm holding the camera here. I want to take a picture of Nate's lovely base over here. I need to adjust the focal point so it's in the right place. When it's in the wrong place, I get a blurry picture. And I really think that's what the Catholic Church has done with this passage. They've focused in the wrong place. So I want to bring our focus back in line with what the Word of God says. Now, to set the stage... The Catholic Church says that Peter is the main focus in this passage, and therefore this passage is teaching the authority that Peter has in the church. And they say that Peter is the first pope, and then he passes on that authority to all future popes. Let's look at what Scripture says. First of all, what does Scripture say is Peter's place in the early church? Because a pope is not just somebody that's over a group of people. It's not somebody that's just over a group of churches even. It's somebody that's over all of the churches, has authority over all of the churches in the whole world. Is this how Scripture portrays Peter? And the answer is absolutely not. In no way, shape, or form can that be justified from the Word of God. There's a pattern in Gospel and Acts. Early in Acts, in the Gospels and in Acts, in the Gospels and then early in Acts, Peter is absolutely the spokesperson, some might even say leader, of the apostles, the twelve. I would rather use the word spokesperson. You see him standing up in public, frankly, because I think he had the biggest mouth. But he's just the guy that's out there and he's really bold. Maybe he had leadership, we don't really know. Beginning with Acts chapter 13 and through the rest of Acts, though, He disappears for the most part. The focus shifts to Paul. Nobody says that Paul was a pope or a leader over the Gentile church. The focus just shifts in the book of Acts. Scripture teaches throughout, or Scripture's teaching on church leadership throughout Scripture never states that one person has authority over all the churches. Nowhere does it say that. Scripture does show us that different people led in different ways. Peter had some sort of leadership being the spokesperson for the apostles. Paul had leadership being the missionary to the Gentiles. James, the brother of Christ, has leadership in the local church in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 21, verse 18, Paul and his companions have to go to Jerusalem to make a report to the leadership. Peter's not even mentioned in that passage. Paul And companions make a report to James and all the elders who were present. Acts chapter 15, 
The leaders of the church in Jerusalem are gathering together to make a really important decision. The situation is that some leaders or some teachers from the Jerusalem church have gone out and were teaching that people needed to become Jewish before they be, could become Christians. And this caused all sorts of problems. And Paul and his companions said, wait a minute, no way. Let's go and get this sorted out. So they go to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, verse 4, it says that they went to see the apostles and elders. No mention of Peter there. Acts chapter 15, verse 6, the leaders meet to discuss the situation. Again, it's the apostles and the elders. Peter would have been one among them. And then an interesting thing happens. As they're working out the situation, Peter speaks in verses 7 and 8, and he gives a testimony. There's a wonderful passage where Paul shows, I'm sorry, where God shows Peter that God is accepting the Gentiles. And Peter was the firsthand witness of that, so he gives that testimony. Acts chapter 15, verse 12, Barnabas and Paul now say, we've walked around the Roman Empire. God is at work accepting people through Jesus Christ there. Acts chapter 15, verse 13, now James gets up and speaks as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Verses 19 through 20, he says, look, this is what we're going to do. And he institutes a plan. And then in verse 25, the apostles and the elders together with the whole church work together on the situation. This is a beautiful picture of how leadership in the early church worked. Different people had different roles. There was no one person that all the churches had to bow down to and listen to that one person's authority. So let's go back to Matthew 16. Is there special, unique authority given to Peter here? And my answer is, of course, no. First, this passage... This idea of the the keys of the kingdom and this binding and loosing, and we'll look at that in a second, this is only mentioned in Matthew. The other Gospels have the account of Jesus asking them, at least Mark and uh, Luke do, of Jesus asking them, who do you say I am? And Peter answering, you are Christ. But they stop there. Now, I would imagine if these statements are so foundational for the rest of the leadership, for the rest of the history of the church, that the other gospel writers would have included it. All right, now admittedly, that's shaky argument, okay? But that's a beginning. But let's go a little further. Why did Matthew include it? What is Matthew trying to say here? Is he saying that Jesus gave Peter authority over the entire church? Let's look at verse 18. Jesus changes Peter's name. He says, I tell you that you are Peter. That's the Greek word Petros, which means rock, stone, something like that. And on this rock, that's the Greek word Petra, which means bedrock, cliff, like something you could not possibly go and move. That's what that rock is. It's sunk into the ground. It's part of the earth. You can't move it. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, Some Protestant scholars like to take those two words, Petros and Petra, and say, see, they're two completely different things. And that's why the Catholics are wrong. And some of you maybe have heard that. Some of you are going, I don't really care. And that's okay. Stick with me for a second. It's so hard preaching because I know some of you know these things and I need to interact with them. Some of you don't, and that's okay. You don't need to. But this one's kind of a big deal. I think the Protestants overstate this objection. I don't think you can answer this strictly by the Greek words. 
I've studied this enough. I've looked at numerous different scholars. I've looked at Catholics and how they answer the Protestants on this issue. This is a weak argument. Jesus is making a play on word. Petros is a masculine noun. This has nothing to do with gender in the debates today. It has everything to do with grammar and Greek grammar, which you really shouldn't care too much about. It's okay. But this is the way it works. You can't use a feminine noun to refer to a guy. You just can't do it. It breaks the laws of Greek grammar. So he has to use Petros, Peter. When he gets to the church, he has to use Petra. He has to do it to use this according to Greek grammar. I just don't think that's strong enough. The reason I'm saying this is that if you are debating with your Catholic friends, just understand that that argument using those two Greek words is not going to carry water. It's not good enough. It's reading way too much into the text, and that's what I think the Catholics are guilty of, and we can't answer them by making the same mistake. Okay? So, what's going on here? First of all, the Catholics would say, well, the... Jesus is declaring Peter to be the rock for the whole church. Therefore, he is the Pope. He is declaring it to be true, which is interesting because five verses later, Jesus declares something else to be true about Peter. He says this, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Matthew, I believe, is extremely intentional about putting these two passages together. Peter, you did something amazing. You declared Jesus to be the Christ. That's awesome. This is a foundational truth of the church. You're also a complete idiot sometimes. And you're really messed up to the point. I mean, this is not just, <laughs> Peter, that's so cute. This is a major deal for the Son of God to call his disciples Satan. He is making it unequivocally clear that is not allowed in my people. You are way off base, Peter. And I find it hard to understand how our Catholic friends would take one to say this is the absolute truth that Peter is an authority over the church and the other they just kind of ignore. Both have to be taken together. In Matthew 16, verse 19, they say, well, Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom and this authority. And we'll talk about what that means in a second. But we have to compare that just a couple chapters later in chapter 18, verse 18, where the church is dealing with unrepentant sinners in the church. People who have been challenged in their sin and refuse to repent. And Jesus says to the entire church, Peter, again, is not mentioned in the passage or in the context. He says, truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So whatever was stated to Peter in Matthew chapter 16 is now enlarged to the entirety of the church in Matthew 18. Now, what is Matthew trying to focus on in verses 13 through 20? If we look at verses 15 and 16, Peter declares who Jesus is. The focus of this passage is not on Peter specifically, but on Peter's declaration about Christ. Then we get to verse 17, 
Jesus says that Peter's declaration, declaration was not revealed by, or didn't come to him by his own understanding or any teaching of men. It was revealed by his Father in heaven. It is divine inspiration that helped Peter to understand this. And then verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. Do you see the focus of this passage? The focus is on Jesus, the truth about Jesus, and the church that Jesus is building. The church belongs to Jesus. This is the first time in the book of Matthew, in fact, the first time in the New Testament, this word church is even used. And it's huge. Jesus says, I will build my church. He is the one who builds the church. The church is built on who Jesus is and the truth being proclaimed about Jesus Christ. So what about Peter? Is he important? Yes, actually. Because he is declaring who Jesus is just like we still do today. He's a pattern for each one of us to follow. The church is built on followers of Jesus Christ who declare the truth about Jesus Christ. So I just wanted to spend a moment to adjust our focus. And and I do have to disagree with our friends in the Catholic Church here. This passage is not in any way, shape, or form teaching a role of a pope or some overarching human authority over the entirety of all the churches throughout history and around the world. Matthew is not saying that. Jesus is not saying that. And Scripture simply does not support it. All right. Now let's shift our focus and let's talk about what this passage is saying and why it's such a big deal. If we start with verses 13 through 18, we see that at the focus here is about what Peter says about Jesus. Do you remember who Matthew was writing to? The audience of his gospel, as we can understand from what he's written and how he puts it together, seems to be primarily Jewish. He quotes the Old Testament way more than anybody else. Massive amounts of quotes from the Old Testament. You wouldn't do that to people that didn't know the Old Testament. He does that because he's writing to people that know the Old Testament, the Jewish people. The Jewish people understood their identity as those who had been called by God out from their situation, their cultures, their homes into a relationship with God. That's what the Old Testament talks about. We see this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 23 to 24. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever and you, Lord, have become their God. Israel was special. God called to them. They were lost and hopeless. And God called to Abraham and said, Come. Come live in relationship with me. They were lost in Egypt and enslaved. And God called to them and said, Come, I'm going to save you out of that. Come out to the desert. And I'm going to teach you who I am. And so we come to this church, or this word in verse 18 that the NIV has church, and I think that's probably what most English translations use. 
The Greek word is ekklesia. Ekklesia. It very simply means those who are gathered. That's it. The gathered ones. It's not a religious word whatsoever. Those who are gathered. And yet we see that Jesus uses this in a powerful way and it takes on a powerful meaning all throughout the rest of Scripture. Paul writes his letters to the ecclesia, the church in whatever town he's writing to, Corinth, Galatia, Philippi. Paul uses this word ecclesia a lot. We'll look at Ephesians briefly. Chapter 1, verse 22, And God placed all things under his feet, talking about Christ, and appointed him to be head over everything for the ecclesia, church, the gathered ones. Chapter 3, verse 10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. God's plan is for the gathered ones, the church, to be a demonstration of his plan and his wisdom to the world. So the world would look at those gathered in Jesus Christ and go, that's amazing. Look at who they are and what they're doing. That they would see God through us. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church, ecclesia, and in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So that's just a taste. I could go to so many places. We could go to the seven letters in Revelation, all written to the church, same word. We could go to so many different places. It's hard because this is one of those words we throw out and we don't even think about, but I want us to think about it this morning. The ecclesia, the church, is a big deal. Now again, this was a common word for them. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, there's an unruly mob that gathers, uh, mostly of silversmiths, and they're mad because they would make idols for the city. And they're not making much money because people are following Jesus Christ, which is awesome. I think it's a great picture of how the church changes the world. But in Acts chapter 9, it talks about this unruly gathering, and it says the assembly was in confusion. That's what our our English translation says. But the word there is ecclesia, those gathered. So when we look at what ecclesia means, when we want to understand who is being gathered, we can't just look at the fact that they happen to get together. We have to ask why they're together. The identity of the ecclesia is in the purpose that brings us together. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what Peter is talking about here. This is the important issue in Matthew 16. The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. That's our identity. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says some important things about this new group, this ecclesia. He says, I will build. I think I have a slide about this. I don't. Whoops. He says, I will build my church. This tells us something about the church. It's not man-made. Does not depend on our techniques and our programs. The church is built by Jesus Christ. It is something he is doing. I will build. The other thing we see is, I will build my church. My church. 
You ever talk to people who are like, well, my church does that, and my church does this, and my church goes here and does this, and well, your church does this. Jesus says, no, 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 mine. <laughs> the church that gathers is Jesus' church. It's not our church. It's not our world's church. It's not our culture's church. It's not our area's church. We belong to Jesus Christ. Christ is the one that calls us together. We are gathered and have an identity as a church only because of Jesus Christ. If we are gathering for any other reason, we might as well just be some civic organization or club. We're not that. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians are confusing the church with good civic organizations and clubs. We have an identity only because of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Wow. Hades is another word for hell. Death is another way they might have thought about that in their own language. He says the ultimate enemy of Christ, the ultimate enemy of the church, will never overcome the church of Jesus Christ. Man, I wish as Christians we would live with that truth today. I see so many people fretting. Oh, the church is going to die. Oh, the church is falling apart. Yeah, we're falling apart. We're always falling apart. We're a bunch of messed up people, in case you haven't noticed. And we live in a messed up, falling apart world. It's true. But we belong to Jesus. We exist because of Jesus. And the Son of God, the Lord of heaven and earth, has said, the church will not be overcome. This is why, among so many reasons, the foundation of the church has to be Jesus Christ. Because when we base it on ourselves, our preferences, our likes, our don't, our not likes, or whatever the culture needs, or whatever we don't want the culture to want, and we make it on anything other than Jesus Christ, we are doomed to fail. We become less than the ecclesia, the gathered ones, in Jesus Christ. The foundation of the church must be Jesus Christ. But I do need to add, there is something about this that doesn't go far enough to be fair to the passage. The foundation of the church is not just the truth about Jesus Christ in this passage. Matthew is saying something that I, I do think the Catholic Church is beginning to understand that we maybe have let go of a little bit. Because Matthew is saying that there is something important about Peter. Peter has declared this truth. The church is based on those gathered in Jesus Christ who proclaim the truth about Christ. We don't just keep it to ourselves. We don't just get into our holy huddles and talk about whatever we want to talk about. We are identified as the people who proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. And when we quit proclaiming the truth about Jesus Christ, we are not the church of Jesus Christ. And that's a terrifying place to be. The church is the gathering of those who proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. Christ. This is the focus of the passage. The foundation, the bedrock of the church is the truth of who Jesus is. And this is why Matthew emphasizes this in a way that the other gospel writers don't. Because the Jewish people understood being called 
in a very unique way. And Matthew's now applying that to the church to say, Jesus said, this is who we are now. We are the people of God called together in Jesus Christ. Now, what about the whole keys to the kingdom and the binding and loosening? Oh, look at the time. We just don't have time to deal with that. I'm kidding. Let's go through it quickly. This is hard stuff. It's been quite a week studying this stuff. I got to be honest with you. Let's look at verses 19 through 20. He says, I think I've got this. I do. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. First of all, as we interpret this, don't throw away everything we've just said. We, as Christians, as people that study the Bible, sometimes we have a really short attention span. We move on to another passage and we just like throw away what we just talked about. All right? We've just talked about, and Jesus has just emphasized what Peter has just emphasized. It's all about Jesus Christ. So let's not get rid of that. The church is the gathering of those saved by Christ who proclaim Christ. Here, Jesus is talking about the mission of the church. Our mission involves our identity. Saved by Christ, proclaiming Christ. We know that this mission will be successful. Because Jesus has just said, even the gates of hell cannot come against it or overcome it. Pastor and theologian J.C. Ryle from the 1800s says this, Nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned, but the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. The church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. The church is a bush which is often burning and yet is not consumed. So as we look at the mission, understand it is an unshakable mission that will not fail, not because of us, but because of Christ. So we come to verse 18. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. There is some semblance of authority here. Jesus is telling Peter he is going to give him something. And I think Peter as a representative of all Christians, the whole church, I'm going to give you something of authority that matters in heaven. couple of observations. I, Jesus says, I will give you the keys. Christ is going to give some meaningful authority to the church. It is based on Jesus Christ, not on us. He is the one that gives. The second thing is I will give. It's a future. At this point in the gospel with Matthew, as they're sitting with Jesus right here, Jesus says a time will come in the future when I will give you this authority. Something 
has to happen between when he says this and when they receive this authority. And that needs to raise a question. What is it? And I'm not going to answer that for you yet. My famous statement, we'll get to that. Look at verse, or chapter 16, verse 21. Because actually Jesus answers it for us. This isn't in our passage. We'll look at this next week. But chapter 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. There is something about this authority to determine who goes to heaven and who doesn't that has to wait until after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Hmm. Why? John chapter 3, verse 3 says this. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So how do you get into the kingdom? You're born again. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. How are you saved? By trusting in Jesus Christ. Period. The Bible is abundantly clear on this issue. So as we take that understanding of salvation... And we bring it into this passage, we have to say, what was Jesus saying to Peter? Well, I wonder if Peter understood it. Because in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he declares to the crowd, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I don't have that on a slide. Sorry about that. This is on the day of Pentecost. He's he's out there proclaiming to the crowds how to be saved. And he doesn't stand up and say, well, I've got the key. So, you know, you need to come to me and I'll interview you and decide if you're good enough to get into the kingdom or not. He says, no, look to Jesus. That's how you're saved. We don't save anybody. Whatever authority is being given here, it is not the authority to save anybody. What it is, is the authority to proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. People are only saved by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And throughout the New Testament, it is abundantly clear what the disciples understood is their mission. It is to go out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how important our mission is. It has eternal consequences for all who are involved. Quickly, what is binding and loosing? I'll just say up front, this is not clear. And maybe I should just leave it at that. The language of binding and loosing comes from the Jewish rabbis. It was their ability based on the Old Testament law to say whether or not something was in line with that law. If they bound it, it was in line with that. Or, or if they bound it, they're saying you're not allowed to do that. If they loose it, it's like then that's in line with it and you can do it. The question is what Jesus means by this. And what he says is that what you bind on earth will be, or the Greek can also read, uh, will have been bound in heaven. 
And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's a connection between what the church does and what's going on in heaven. What is not clear in this passage is which comes first. The Catholics would take this to say what we do on earth, then God upholds. I think that's backwards to everything else scripture teaches us. We do on earth what reflects what God has already done and who he is. That's abundantly clear throughout all of scripture. I think it's really important not to build important church doctrine on obscure phrases in scripture. Jesus is saying to the church in this passage, I believe, and this is what I'm comfortable saying about this, that he's saying to judge in line with the gospel. Weigh things according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's only the gospel, the truth about Jesus, that determines if someone is saved or not saved. It's not our traditions. It's not our opinions. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, verse 20, he tells them something amazing. This profound statement of who Jesus is, and he says, then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. What? Shh, don't tell anybody about Jesus. Do you imagine a pastor saying that today? Don't tell them. Why? Time wasn't. And we know the time wasn't ready because in the next verse he says he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day raised to life. The mission of the church depends on the truth of the cross and the resurrection. Not on how to be a good person, not on how to feel better about yourself, not on just how we can love each other. It depends on the truth about Jesus Christ. And that truth was not to be spread until the gospel was enacted when our Savior died on the cross in our place and he rose from the dead and he kicked hell in the teeth and he said, I have overcome. And guess what happens after the resurrection? Jesus gathers his disciples and he says, now go. Go into all the world. Tell them everything I have said to you. There's no more don't tell anybody. It's tell it to anybody you can. This is our mission. We have an unshakable identity in Jesus Christ as the church. It's an identity that we are the ones gathered by Christ who proclaim Christ being saved by Jesus Christ. We have an unshakable mission in this world based on who Jesus is and what he has done that can never be changed and never be overcome. And the success of our mission, no matter who's in the White House or what laws are being enacted in any given country, the success of our mission is dependent on Jesus Christ. And he has said, you will never fail. It's unshakable. So church... Those called by Jesus Christ, gathered together, whether it's here or other local congregations. Church, listen to me. Do not be afraid. Do not be overwhelmed. Don't fret. Focus on Jesus Christ, who he is. Hold on to that truth. Proclaim that truth, come what may. 
And understand that your Savior has said, even the gates of hell will not overcome the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, sometimes as we come to your word, we get these truths that we can just sort of chew on for a long time and soak deep into us. Other times we come to your word and it's like drinking from a fire hose as you just bombard us with one thing after another. But God, I pray, just as Jesus said about Peter, that what Peter said was revealed by your Father. God, I pray that you would reveal to us the truth about who Jesus is. Open up our eyes to see. Clear away our misconceptions. Clear away human agendas and ideas. That we could be people that could stand up and say about Jesus Christ, He is our Messiah, our Savior, the Son of God. And then give us boldness to proclaim this truth, to live this truth, to enact this truth as we interact with one another, to love each other, not based on preference, but based on the gospel. God, may we be a gathering of people saved by Christ that you can hold up to this world and say, See, This is the difference the gospel makes. Give us courage and boldness and keep our focus in the right place, Father. The unshakable truth of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.